Amen. If you'll get your copy of Scripture out, open to John chapter 12. We will take a break from our study through the Gospel of Luke and look at John's account of the triumphal entry on this Palm Sunday. John chapter 12, you can find that on page 1238 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to just grab that Bible in front of you, open to page 1238. You'll be able to follow along with us. This morning we're going to look at the issue of joy. We're going to take a look at the the varying degrees of joy, the variations of joy. One thing that I have noticed over the years is that many Christians have a difficult time with the issue of joy. We have a difficult time in expressing joy and explaining joy to those around us. We struggle, I think, because we, on one hand, read things in Scripture and sing things like it is well, a very amazing, wonderful, deep theological song, and yet at the same time, there's something in our heart that recognizes that we, we struggle to really live out that truth. And what I notice is, is that we, we tend to find it easy to see that the world struggles to find joy, but then it gets a little difficult in our lives because we, some of you maybe feel guilty when you do not feel joyful. You feel like as a believer, you should always just have joy and therefore you have a hard time when things go uh, awry. We have a hard time when, when people around us as believers, people in our own fellowship, suffer. One of the reasons why I like to point out to you, uh, oftentimes, some of the things God's doing in our congregation, I like to do that on Sunday mornings, bring that to the forefront of your attention, uh, whether it works out for good or whether it's seemingly not what we had desired the outcome to be. I want to express to you that it's not always good. And we have a hard time with that as believers. And I believe that there's uh, few passages of Scripture that will help us see so clearly the varying degrees of joy than thinking about the triumphal entry and looking at what was going on in the life of our Savior as He was approaching Jerusalem and His ultimate death upon the cross and resurrection into heaven. So let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I'm grateful, Lord God, for uh, this perfect, wonderful gift that You've given to us. And Lord, I pray right now that You'll give me uh, preaching grace to speak these words, Lord. You'll take control of my mouth. And Father God, You will, through Your Holy Spirit, just empower us to be able to receive Your Word, to hear, receive, and respond accordingly to what You'd have to say to us today. Father, thank You. It is a true privilege to be able to look into Your Word and to see this amazing picture of joy. Now, will You use it in our lives for Your glory? In Jesus' name, Amen. John chapter 12. Jesus has been in Bethany. Uh, he's leaving Bethany, leaving uh, you know where His friend Lazarus lived. He's heading into Jerusalem. And so there's a multitude with Him. And we'll pick up in verse 12. As he's heading toward the cross. Verse 12, John 12, 12. The next day a great multitude that came to the feast. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, he sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about Him and that they had done these things to Him. Therefore, the people who were with Him, when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised Him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met Him because they heard that He had done this sign. But the Pharisees, therefore, they said amongst themselves, You see that all, of, all that's being accomplished is nothing, yet the world has gone after Him. The Pharisees respond to this as, Look at what's going on. The world seems to be going with Him. But here's the picture. It's a picture of a king, a king who's come to die. I mean, he knew, Jesus knew that this ticker tape parade, this all of the, the, the adoration that was being bestowed upon him, he knew that it wasn't um, legitimate. He knew that it wasn't authentic. He knew that in just a few uh, short days that they'd be calling for his death and that everything that was being expressed in this moment on Palm Sunday would be turned to hatred. He knew that. But I want you to see this, the picture, first of all, of a fleeting joy. A joy that just sort of ebbs and flows. It's here one moment and then it's gone another moment. Notice in, in verse 12, the next day there's a great multitude, the Bible says, that they come to the feast and when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So when the news got out, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, their response is to take palm branches and to begin to wave them and cry out, Hosanna, Lord, come now, save us now. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. It sounds so wonderful. It sounds so authentic. It sounds so real. And it wasn't that these people were cheering because uh, this was the Savior sent from God that they were expecting. This was in no way, shape, or form the Savior that they had been expecting. This is not the, the military leader that they were hoping would come and, and crush the oppression of the Romans. That's not at all what it was. It wasn't the, the one that they thought would come in, in might and power and bring economic change or, or freedom or political newness to the situation. No, it, it wasn't that. I mean, here's Jesus on a, on a donkey. Here's this lowly king just wa walking into Jerusalem. Well, why, why are the people cheering? I mean, this clearly isn't what they had been hoping for. This clearly isn't what they expected. So what was all the cheering about? Well, it's a, it's a fleeting joy that says, you know what? This isn't really what we'd hoped for. This isn't really what we thought would be. This isn't exactly the way we thought it was going to happen, but... It's what we got. We, we can't really explain the fact that He raised Lazarus from the dead. We can't explain the things that He's done other than He must be sent from God. And I know He doesn't look like the one that we'd hope for. I know He doesn't act like the one that we hope for. And He certainly doesn't talk like the one that we hope for. But I guess we'll take Him. And so, as He comes in... They start to cheer. It's a reluctant joy. It's a joy that comes into our lives all the time. It creeps in to our hearts because of our circumstances. That there are those times when things around us just seem to be going good. And so we feel good and we have this joy. But it's just joy in the moment. It's just joy in what's the here and now. 
And in an instant, with just one shift or one change, it's gone. It's fleeting. See, that's why the Bible says in verse 17, Therefore the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out from the tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness to that. See, they, were, they knew that Jesus had power. But he wasn't what they wanted. But it was all that they had. And so they just thought, well, let's, let's praise him. Let's, let's treat him as if he's king for now. Because for now, it seems like it's going okay. And you know, Jesus is not unaware of this. He realizes that their worship is half-hearted. He realizes that their hearts are in the wrong place. He knows that, but he's, he's accomplishing something here. This is all part of his divine plan. And, you know, for us, we need to recognize and realize that looks can be deceiving. Can they not? Especially when it comes to joy. That oftentimes, my experience has shown me that some of the the most hurting people will outwardly seem like the most joyful. That oftentimes what we'll do is we'll use humor to take attention off of the fact that inside we're dying. We will try to divert away the reality of what's really going on in our lives and our hearts by trying to just pretend to be happy. But really inside we're, we're dying, we're hurting, we're struggling. See, it, it, it looks on the outside like wholehearted worship. It would be real easy for us to say, look at the people. If we didn't know the rest of the story, if we were in this moment, this is what I've been doing the last week. I've been putting myself into this passage and wondering, where's Tony in this? What is he doing? Is he waving palm branches? Is he right along with the crowd? Is he just cheering? And then where will he be in a few days? Would I be there screaming, crucify him, crucify him? This isn't what we thought. This isn't what we expected. This, This can't be right. There must be something better. You see, even the Pharisees were concerned. The passage ends with them saying, look, the world has gone after him. I mean, the Pharisees are looking at this on the outside and they're thinking, we got problems. This is not going our way. So Jesus, in a very rare instance, it appears that he's accepting this false worship. Normally, Jesus would just rise up against this, but it's all part of his divine plan. And everything is going according to uh, that which the Scriptures have laid out. And so they're waving these palm branches and they go out to meet Him and they cry, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. What, what's with the palm branches? Why, why palm branches? Well, this is just a, a precursor to what's to come. Everything in this passage of Scripture is just a glimpse of what is going to be fulfilled. The problem is, is that so many times in our lives, what we see is just a glimpse of what's coming, but we're focused, we're stuck on what we see right now, where we are right now. And our joy is hindered because we're unable to see the big picture. And that's exactly what's going on here. This is merely a precursor. Psalm 96 says this, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar in all its fullness, let the field be joyful and all that's in it. And all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. And He shall judge the world with righteousness and all peoples with truth. 
You see, the trees are going to cry out. They won't need anyone to wave them. This is the beginning, but when He comes again and makes everything right and judges the world in righteousness, the trees will take care of all the waving on their own. But in the precursor, people are waving these branches. Isaiah 55 tells us that when the Lord returns for good, the Bible says, For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace, for the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. You see, today, people wave palm branches. But according to Revelation 19, when Jesus returns the next time, the palm branches will wave themselves. The trees will clap. All of creation will worship the God who has returned in power. He won't be riding a donkey on that day. And so they scream Hosanna, this anthem of the Hebrew people, save us, because they have their 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 suffering is real. Their struggling is true. They they are they are people who have been in, in bondage and they're struggling. And so they they want to be saved, but they want it on their own terms. They say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right out of Psalm one eighteen. They're just repeating what God has already said is going to happen. Look at verse 14. Then Jesus, when he found a young donkey, he sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Right out of Zechariah 9, 500 years prior to this very event, the Bible says, the prophet Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 500 years earlier. They knew this. They're standing there. They're watching all of this happen. But they can't see past their own circumstances. They can't undo what their, their hearts desire. They can't let themselves go in the moment. They can't recognize that He is the one, even though all these clues, all these hints are right before them. That sounds so familiar. How many times is God so obvious in our lives? He's so obvious right before us and around us. We look back at times in our life and... We think, why could I not see that? It was there. But you see, our heart gets wrapped up in the moment. It gets wrapped up in our circumstances. And we're, we're unable to, to, to grab hold of, of the reality of what's going on around us. And so our joy is just up and down and up and down. It's a reluctant joy of people. They so desperately want a king. But they've spent so much time conjuring up in their own mind what this king would be like and what he would do that they just simply could not let go. But here's Jesus fulfilling sequentially in perfection every one of these prophecies that everyone there knew. There was no secret. And Jesus, he's entering, he's torn, he's torn between the joy of what he's about to accomplish on the cross and yet the sorrow of this half-hearted worship of these people. He, he's excited, the Bible says in Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He was going to the cross. He recognized what was going to happen around him. He recognized that the world would never be the same because of what was about to take place. And yet people 
on his left and on his right. People created in his own image. Little children and moms and grandfathers all around him. Blinded. And it broke his heart. When Luke tells the story of the triumphal entry, Luke says in Luke 19 that as he saw the city, he wept over it. And he's coming in and he's weeping. And he says, if, if only you had known, even you, especially in this, that it's your day. These things that make of your peace. But you couldn't see it. It was right before you. It's a fleeting joy. A fleeting joy is, is a joy that's always founded in circumstances. It's always based on whatever predicament or situation we find ourselves in. But I want you to see that there's another kind of joy. There's a clouded joy. Probably a more common joy in this room would be a clouded joy than a fleeting joy. In verse 16, here's what the Bible says. His disciples who were witnessing all this, who were part of this parade, they didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, you see, after it was all over, then they remembered that these things were written. Really? Like... How is that even possible? How do you grow up reciting the prophecy of Zechariah that your king is going to come riding on a donkey, riding on a colt into Jerusalem and he's going to bring with him salvation. And then here comes Jesus after everything he's done. He's raised people from the dead and he's doing exactly as the prophecy said. But we're just not sure. We, We just don't get this. It it was clouded. It wasn't until Jesus' glorification before they could fully understand. You see, because it wasn't until His glorification, it wasn't until Pentecost that they received His Spirit. And and they 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 could relate to what God is doing internally. The, The voice of God would lead them and speak them. It would illumine their minds to see what seems so very obvious. Now, Jesus explains all of this in John chapter 14. When He's talking about the Holy Spirit, He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things, and He will bring to your remembrance all things that I said unto you. He's already told them that. He said, Now, we've got some people here who just, they don't know Me, but they're caught up in the moment, and they've got this fleeting joy. Then we've got other people here, My people, these disciples, Jesus' people, people who have the opportunity, but they're clouded. They, they, They miss it. They miss it. And so there's this fleeting joy. There's a clouded joy. But but where does this whole story end? I mean, how how does this all play out? What are what are all these events that are going forward? Now, if you read the Gospel of John. Here's what you're going to find. After chapter 12, all of these events are going to start taking place in the life of our Savior. And He's arrested, and He's persecuted, and He's beaten, and all the the events of the Passion Week start taking place. But here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about what's going on with the disciples during this week. What are they doing? What are these men who have spent the last three, three and a half years living with Jesus, being taught by Jesus, watching all the things that Jesus has done? What do they do? What are they doing in John chapter 13? 
What are they doing in John chapter 14? What are they doing in John chapter 15? They're trying to figure all this out. They're suffering. They're slowly sliding back. They're, they're beginning to, to get fearful. They're beginning to doubt. They're beginning to wonder. They don't understand. They know what Jesus has told them. In fact, they get really quiet. After about the first uh, couple sections of John 14, they don't say a word. Not one word. You don't hear a word out of any of the disciples. Now, think about what's going on in the life of Christ. In other words, if you found yourself in the worst possible circumstance you could ever be in, falsely accused and being persecuted and you're on CNN and you're, you're thrown in jail and all these things are going on, and yet all of your closest friends, all of your relatives, all the people who are supposed to love you are silent. They're not there. They're not proclaiming your innocence. They're not. They're just quiet. As if they're, they're not sure. They don't know. Nothing. Now turn over to John chapter 16 and I want to show you something. In John chapter 16, we re-engage. And I want you to see where all of this plays out with regards to joy. John 16. Now... We'll pick up in verse 16. This is really the, the night before His crucifixion. Jesus is literally hours away from death at this point. And we haven't heard anything out of His disciples for quite some time. John 16, verse 16. Jesus says, In a little while, you will, you will not see Me. And again, in a little while, you will see Me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said amongst themselves, now that's important. Why don't they just ask Jesus? You see, they're, you can see how they're, they're, they're just struggling right now. There's Jesus right there. All you have to do is ask him. I wonder how many times in our lives, instead of just asking, Instead of just turning to the Father, instead of just asking our spouse or asking our pastor or asking someone, we just decide to keep it internally. We just hold it inside because we feel distant. We feel separated. We feel... And so they hold it inside. They say, well, what is this he's talking about? A little while. In a little while you will not see me. In a little while you will see me. Because, because I go to the Father. Then said, therefore... What is this that he says? A little while, verse 18. We do not know what he's saying. They don't understand. So how does Jesus respond? With frustration? With anger? Verse 19. So Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. So he said to them, Are you inquiring amongst yourselves about what I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me? Most assuredly, verse 20, he says, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Verse 21, a woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Now, do you see what's happening here? 
See, we went from a fleeting joy to a clouded joy. And now Jesus is presenting this irrevocable joy, this indestructible joy, this unstoppable joy, this ever-present joy, this unbelievable joy. I don't know how many words I could think of to describe this joy. Now, I know what you're thinking. The same thing you were thinking when we were singing it as well. It says that. But how do I live that? Why, why, why don't I experience that? Where is the, the disconnect? A joy that no one will take from you? Well, let's talk about this for a moment. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, in a little while, you'll not see me. But then in a little while, you'll see me again because I'm going to the Father. Now, he's talking about his death. He's talking about his resurrection. But he's not only talking about his death and his resurrection. He's talking about this whole redemptive process that is now commencing. In other words, he's talking about his death. He's talking about his resurrection. But he's also talking about... Pentecost. He's also talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about from where you are today, disciples, there's going to be a time in the near future where all of this is going to be complete and you're going to have a joy that no one can take from you. So there's the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. Now, Back in verse 14, before we got into this, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. That's how I know what this is about. Some people think this is about Jesus' second coming. Clearly, it's not about that. Uh, It wouldn't make sense in that context. He is talking about the resurrection. But you can't say that this is just the resurrection void of the Holy Spirit because that's taking this passage out of context. It's the whole picture. Because he says back in verse 14, he says about the Holy Spirit, that he'll glorify me, for he will take what is mine and he'll declare it unto you. In other words, so when you receive the Spirit, what is the function of the Spirit in our lives? It's to manifest Christ. In other words, when we are saved, we receive the Spirit of Christ within us. And so, although Christ isn't among us on earth, he's within us. And it's better because when he was here, he wasn't omnipresent. And so everyone had to share him, if you will. But now he's with all of us who are his. We take him with us. We're never apart from him. So he doesn't go away somewhere into another place. He doesn't get up early in the morning and go off to pray and leave us alone. No, he's always with us. And what the Spirit does in our heart is that it makes Christ present with us. It brings Christ into our consciousness. And and so that is the purpose of the Holy Spirit, to make Christ evident, His teaching evident, to illumine our minds and give us clarity and understanding so that we might understand. And it's true of all of us who are His. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not His. So if you are a child of God, you possess the Spirit of Christ within you. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what's going on. And Jesus is saying, listen, you don't need to be worrying. Everything's about to change. You have no idea what's about to happen. And and so he chooses, of all things, a woman in labor 
to explain this in verse 21. He says, A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, this is the part where I believe we get some clarity about joy right here. Because Jesus didn't just grab this illustration out of the air. He chose this very specifically to teach us something about what's going on. I want you to notice what this says. It doesn't say that this mom... Remember, this is before any epidurals. This is before there's any pain medication. Are you with me? So this, isn't a, this is a tough moment, all right? I mean, I'm, I'm there when, when many of you have given birth to a child. And, and I mean, it's amazing that, that now so many times, uh, you know, they wheel mom in. I mean, little Isabella just comes into the world, you know, a week or so ago, and she's just perfect, just perfect. I mean, and mom comes right in and, you know, it's been a little, it hasn't been just a walk in the park, but man, you know, you have a C-section and everything's just there. I mean, boy, man, my kids, whew, they came out and poor Kayla, her head looked like candy corn, man. That thing was, I'm sorry, honey. You'll be at college soon. You'll miss these moments that we share. But here's what Jesus doesn't say. What is wrong with me? I don't know. Well, here's what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say that when the child is born, the pain goes away. That's not what he says. He says she doesn't remember the anguish. So where's the pain? It's still there. You see, moms, I don't know this firsthand. I only know this from observation twice. That it hurts. And it keeps hurting. But the baby's there and you're overwhelmed with joy because the baby's there. And if you look at the mom in the moment she's holding the little cone head, but she's dying inside with pain... She doesn't look like she's hurting, but she's hurting. And then, you know, she hands me the baby and then I take the baby and then I'm holding the baby. And then pretty soon as time goes on and then all of a sudden, you know, the reality of what's going on physically comes back and I'm hurting. I'm hurting. You see, Jesus, this is the problem we get into. We think that because we're his children, that we shouldn't hurt. And when we hurt, we, it sort of confuses us a little bit and because we don't really understand that and we think Jesus should just take that away. Now, it's okay to want Him to take it away, but here's where we get into trouble. We just say things like, well, you know, it's going to go away. It's going to pass. It's going to be okay. It's going to... And what we're referring to is that in this life, in this time, it's going to do that. How do you know? How do you know it's going to go away? You know, every time I visit someone in the hospital, I don't know it's going to go away. I don't know if they'll ever leave that hospital. I don't know that. And neither do they. I hope they do, but I don't know that. And here's what I know. I know that joy 
and suffering overlap in the Christian life. That it's not one or the other. It's both. And that the mother is still hurting, but she doesn't remember the pain. Why? Because the joy of the child overwhelms the pain that is still there. That's what Jesus is communicating to us. You see, think about this. Go back to fleeting joy. The joy of the world. That joy really struggles with pain. Because when pain comes, the joy's gone. And everything's about the pain. You ever been to the funeral of a pagan family? You ever watched that whole ordeal unfold? It just rips your heart out. It's horrible. They don't have any way to process. And so they have to come up with their own way to deal with pain. So here's what happens. Apart from Christ, you've got to either forget the pain. So what most people do is they just medicate themselves. They just use uh, drugs or alcohol or get themselves on enough prescription so that they don't remember the pain. And they can just deal with it that way. Or you just avoid the pain. We got people in our society right now that what they do is just lock themselves up and don't leave the house and barricade themselves in and try to just not have to not have to get out there. I'm just going to avoid all the pain. I'm going to pretend it's not there, which leads to the third thing, which is just deny the pain. Just deny that the pain's even there. Deny that it's even that bad. How many people do you work with that are apart from Christ? How many people are in your family that don't know Christ? This is how they deal with pain. There's no joy when they're struggling and suffering. When things are wrong, everything's wrong. And what do they do? They've got to deny it, they've got to avoid it, or they've got to forget it. That's what they've got to do. And so you sit there and you watch television and you see the beer commercials that everyone looks so happy. And if you just drink their product, you're going to be cool and everything's going to be good. And we just, because we'll just... We'll just forget it. We'll forget it exists. We'll, we'll go to the movies all the time. You ever notice that, that strange sensation that when you go to the movies and you've been sitting in there, uh, especially if you go to the movies in the daytime and you watch a movie... So for two hours, you've been sitting in this dark room. And if it was a decent movie, you get totally wrapped up in what you're watching. And so you're in another world. And then as you're leaving, you walk out into the sunlight and there's this reality. And and I rarely go to the movies. I went to a matinee with Lisa last week for probably the first time since my kids were tiny. And it instantly came back to me that when I walk out into the sunlight, oh, reality. All, my grass needs mowing. I've got 27 phone calls to return. My email box is filled. I've got all these things to do. See, but a few minutes ago, I was in Never Never Land. Right? And so what you do is just go to the movies all the time so you don't have to think about it. You get peace. You get wrapped up in other things. Get that romance novel out and just check out and go into another world. You know, what, what's, what do we say to ourselves? Well, we hear these things like, well, it's going to get better. You know, there's always a silver lining. No, there's not. No, there's not. Sometimes it doesn't get better. A lot of times it doesn't get better. Most of the time it gets worse. But we don't say that. No one ever says, yep, a lot of times it gets worse. But we know it's true. But we, why? We're in denial. We don't know how to process this. 
You see, when you're a Christian, I hope you get this. Your pain doesn't go away. The suffering doesn't end. What happens when you become a Christian? What happens when you receive the Holy Spirit? When you're redeemed and born again? Here's what happens. You become happier and sadder at the same time. What do I mean? Well, obviously, you become happier because you recognize and realize that you're redeemed, that your sin is forgiven, that you're reconciled to God, that things are are right, that your eternity is secure. And so there's joy in that. But you also get sadder. No one tells you this, do they? How do you get sadder? You know this is true. We get sadder because suddenly we see clearly what's going on around us. You see, now we understand that that friend in the next cubicle at work is going to a literal hell. And they're a good person and a nice person, but they're going to hell. We see the, 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 the consequences of sin being played out in the lives of people around us. We know what's going on. And those conversations before Christ where we'd all sat around and said, man, I just don't know. I mean, I hope it'll be better. Maybe you can go to Barnes and Noble and find a self-help book. Or have you seen Dr. Phil? He did an episode on this. Or one time I heard Oprah say, yuck. Well, you don't do that when you're a believer. You see what's really going on. You see the pain that's really there. And you see what... What happens in a world that rejects God? And so it it makes your heart heavy. You, You watch people dash their lives against the rocks of pride and selfishness. You watch people. I've had thousands of conversations with you about, please pray for my brother or my sister or for my best friend. And all they care about is the size of their house or the brand of their car or how they dress or... You see, you know, apart from Christ, you're right there with them. Why? Because it's fleeting joy. You see, you can go and get this fancy new car and it brings joy and it is nice and it is fun to drive. But eventually the payments come and reality sets in and it's not so great anymore. But see, you can see clearly. And so you're happier, but yet you're also sadder at the same time. Christian joy is not the absence of pain. It's the presence of a joy that blossoms up and bursts forth through the pain. That's what being a Christian is. It's like that mom who gives birth, who's still in immense pain. And all is not right, but she has her baby. And you and me, Our lives are not all right. We have problems and suffering and struggles, but we have Jesus Christ. And that's better than anything else we could ever imagine. And so it comes forth through the pain and through the suffering. It's not some... This is the thing. It's not this weird sort of, you know, oh, I'm a Christian, so I'm always going to be happy. You know, and the annoying person that, you know, when you're sad and bummed out and having a bad day wants to say, 
Well, aren't you saved? Well, why are you having a bad day? Well, why don't you shut up? (laughs) See, that's what made Job such a righteous man. His whole life's falling apart. He's got these three idiot friends. Everything's going wrong. What does Job do? Tears his clothes, dumps ashes on his head. See, it was spiritual what happened to me in the woods. He dumps ashes on his head, tears his clothes. He's struggling. And what does the Bible say? He sinned not. He's not going, oh no, I'm a Christian. Everything's fine. All my kids just died. All my animals are done. I'm covered with boils. It's good. No, he didn't do that. Sometimes life stinks. It's okay. Rip your clothes. Put ashes on your head. But just remember, you have Jesus Christ. And in the midst of everything you're going through, we have Christ. He's within us. He'll never leave us or forsake us. He's there. Wherever we go, He's there. He knows. That's what Christian joy is. So the next time you find yourself in this quandary of joy, when you find yourself just struggling with joy. Because here's what I think. I think that there's people in this room right now, you're listening to this and you're realizing right now that your joy is clouded. That you have the capacity to have this irrevocable joy, but you don't. Let me give you a couple practical things to to do in your life. When you find yourself in a difficult situation, why don't you ask questions that reveal the heart and nature of the one you claim to be your Savior? For example, why don't you respond to your pain with questions like, well, could this be the start of something new in my life? Is God up to something in this suffering? Is there something that my Heavenly Father is trying to teach me in this moment. How about, is God trying to tell me something? Am I listening? Is this God's way of answering my prayer? If He answers my prayer today, if you wake up tomorrow... If God answers your prayer tomorrow, would you recognize it as Him? You see, because listen to me. You've spent a lot of time deciding how you think God's going to answer your prayer. And there's a strong compulsion to pick up a palm branch and start waving it reluctantly. Show up at church, even wake up in the morning and open your Bible, but your heart's not there. And you're just waving this palm branch. It's just half-hearted worship. Because you're looking for God to do this thing in your life. And you've just sort of, you've spent a lot of time meditating on how He's going to do it and what's going to be the outcome. And here's my question. What if He answers that prayer? Are you going to recognize that it was Him? What if it's different? What if what God has in mind is way better, exceedingly and abundantly above that which you could ever ask or think? Are you going to recognize that it's Him? Or are you going to miss it? 
Are you going to be too busy waiting on what you thought was going to happen? Is your joy clouded? Or are you like Job, able to suffer and understand that in your suffering, Jesus is better? Now, how is it? Because here's the question. We can't go to Sunday school until we sort this out. How is it that Christians can have a joy that's irrevocable, that's un, uh, it's, it's indestructible, it's unwavering, it's ever-present all the time, equally powerful and equally accessible every millisecond of our lives as believers? How is that possible? How does that work? Quickly, simply, look at what the text says. John 16, verse 22. Therefore... You now have sorrow, Jesus says, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. In other words, what is the source of this joy? The reason it's irrevocable, the reason it's ever present and indestructible is because the joy that we possess is in Jesus and he will never die. You see what the disciples couldn't get. They, they knew that Jesus had, had predicted what he would do, but they just couldn't get their heads around it. But suddenly he is crucified, buried in a tomb, dead. Everything's wrong. We're going back to, instead of the Great Commission, we thought it was a great go fishing. So there we go back. And then all of a sudden, what happens? The tomb bursts open. Man, it's Easter. Everything changes. He's not going to die. He's alive. This joy is based on a God who will never die. See, if he's still in the tomb, then all you got is what you had. But if he bursts forth back to life and defeats death, he lives forever. And if he lives forever, you live forever. And so your joy is based on a God who will always be. So no matter what happens in your life, no matter what you're facing, no matter what struggles, no matter what, He's alive. He won't die. So you remind yourself of that. Some of you this morning, you need a reminder. Jesus Christ will never die. If you're His son or His daughter, your joy is founded in Him and it therefore will never die as well. You see, if you buy into this trick that the world's always trying to sneak into your life, trying to give you this fleeting joy all the time, chasing after these things of the world, suddenly your joy is based on your health or your spouse or the stock market or your 401k or the economy or you fill in the blank. Ask yourself this question. What determines whether or not you're going to have a good day? Tomorrow, I want to know. What is it that determines whether or not your day is going to go okay? And you realize just how pathetic we are. Who cares? In light of this truth, why do we let such... Fleeting thing. In other words, if we base our joy on anything other than Him, anything other than Him, what does that mean? It's shaky at best. I mean, if your joy is dependent on your spouse, good luck with that. If your joy is dependent on your kids, 
That's going to be a fun ride. If your joy is dependent on your 401k, hang on tight. I mean, what, what determines whether your day is going to go good or not? But what if your day is based on your relationship with Jesus Christ? What if that is the preeminent determining factor? As soon as your eyes open in the morning, you're disappointed. Because you're not with Him face to face. So you've got another day on this earth apart from Him, but He's with you all the time right here. So He's here, but the next step is even better than here now. In other words, it gets better from today. You do realize that, don't you? I know, I know nobody's like excited about, you know, their funeral. But you kind of ought to be, shouldn't you? I mean, not necessarily the funeral. I hope you guys have a great time. But whatever you're doing, it ain't going to be as good as what I'm doing. So when my eyes open in the morning, there is a bit of disappointment. But okay. But Lord, today, you're with me. And whatever I face today, you're with me. And I've got you. And then everything else comes. You see, there's... There's really no promise in Scripture for those who find their joy in anything other than Christ, except that it's going to be an extremely difficult ride, no matter what that is. But boy, our, our boss has so much influence on whether we have a good day or not. Our checking account balance has so much weight on whether we're going to have a good day or not. So the first reason why it's irrevocable is because it's based on Jesus and He'll never die. The second reason is because if our joy is based in Jesus, if that's where our joy is founded, and He's in us, then we'll never die. So if our joy is based in a Savior who'll never die... And it's in Him that we find our joy and His Spirit is in us, therefore we'll never die. Then in light of serious suffering, terrible circumstances, isn't that better? Isn't it better? Although we hurt and although it's painful and although we wish things weren't going the way they are, but we're never going to die. Because... What if it kills us? That's the ultimate question that everyone asks when they suffer. Well, what if this is the end? For all of us, we go and face that test. Here we go. We go to the hospital and they're going to test us yet again. And we've had a couple good tests and things seem to be going good and we're in remission. And, you know, we hope things stay that way. We don't want it to be bad. But what if it's not? What if we die? What if today's our last day? Then what? Where are you? The Bible says to be absent from this world, boom, is to be present with the Lord. In other words, He will never... So there's not even a break. There's not even a blink. It's an instantaneous transition from here to there. Instantaneously. 
from this life, this suffering, this reality to pure joy, pure perfection, everything you could ever imagine. And then a million times over instantaneously, you won't even know there was any change until you open your eyes and you're there. Boom. So what are we so grumpy about? What are we so worried about? What is the what's the world got that just breaks that truth down? He says, I'll never leave you in John 14. He tells the disciples, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm going to be there. I'm going to come to you in a little while. The world will see me no more. But you will see me, he says. You'll see me. You're laying in the hospital bed. You're agonizing over the, the, the struggles in your family. You're looking at some circumstances bearing down the, the, the tunnel of your life and you don't know how you're going to overcome them. Jesus says, well, hey, you're going to see me. I'm going to see you. We're going to be together. Nothing's going to separate us. Together. We're in this together. And your hope needs to be, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. You're not alone. In John 11, he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he will live. He'll never die. And we will die physically, but we won't die in him. And so our joy is founded in this Jesus who will never die, whose spirit is in us. Therefore, we will never die because his word says that in him we will never perish. That's what eternal life is. It's irrevocable because you can't lose it. You can't undo it. Once it's done, it's done for all eternity. So he says, therefore, in verse 22, he says, therefore, you now have sorrow. See, he's not denying that in this world we'll face tribulation, but he's saying, but be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. For I've overcome the world. You have sorrow. But I'll see you again. And when I do, your heart will rejoice. Because your joy no one will take from you. Because of the resurrection. Because of this joy that's coming. Because of the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit that's granted to us at salvation. This joy will never, ever leave ever. Ever. But you know what? That doesn't mean you're taking advantage of it. That doesn't mean you're living in it. That doesn't mean you're walking in it. Because you know what I know? I know that it's possible to be starving to death and rummaging through garbage cans looking for scraps to eat behind the very banquet hall that bears your name and grants you entrance and you miss it. You miss it. And it's right there. It's right there. I wonder. I wonder how many of us in here this morning are just denying away the reality or just just trying to forget it or trying to just avoid it. I wonder how many of us in here this morning are believers. But your joy is clouded. and, And you... You feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now bringing back to memory how many times in the past week you've been complaining and just negative and just ungrateful because things weren't going the way you thought they were going to go. 
But what if God answers that prayer in a better way, but it looks like a king riding on a donkey? What are you going to do? There's an irrevocable joy available to all of us this morning, to all of us. Yes, there's suffering. Yes, it's going to last for a while. But one day, the king's coming back. And when he does, all suffering is over for those who are his. You see, the reality of biblical joy needs to be grounded into our heart before we can turn and face the resurrection next Sunday. How's your joy this morning? Is it fleeting? Is it clouded? Or is it irrevocable and ever-present? The solution is simple. Wherever you are, it's Jesus. Maybe it's come up, kneel down at the altar, and, and just reacquaint yourself with the love of God and the joy of your salvation. Maybe today what God's calling you to do is come and surrender your life to Him. To, to live for Him, to be His son or His daughter, to receive this amazing invitation that's before you. Yes, I know. I know it seems scary in this moment. It seems intimidating in this moment. But that's only because you don't realize what's really at stake here. You don't realize how good this really is. Because if you did, nothing, nothing could stand between you and this God. Let's stand, bow our heads and close our eyes as we pray for those around us. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. God, thank you for your promise of joy. Lord God, we give you glory and praise for the God that you are in the midst of the suffering of your disciples, in the midst of all the confusion that they're uh, in the middle of at this time in history, Lord. You don't deal with them informationally or theologically, but you, you address their, their joy. It's their sorrow. It's their ignorance that causes you to weep, Lord. God, what do you see in this room this morning? Oh, Lord, I pray that you will find a people who wholeheartedly worship you as the King, the true and living Messiah sent from God, the only name by which men can be saved. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Will you do now in this time what only you can do, Lord? And we'll give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.